The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. If you've ever looked into the fight for civil rights in Kansas City during the 1950s and 60s, you've probably come across the name Alvin Brooks, a groundbreaking black police officer who took on new approaches to policing, became a community liaison and a connecting point of sorts in Kansas City for decades. I'd like to introduce at this time Alvin Brooks. Well, he's one of the most distinguished members of the Kansas City community, and today the community showed up in droves to remind him just how much he means. thank you, When Kansas City broke out into riots after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in the years following, it was Brooks who became a bridge between a divided community. I made them treat me with respect. As violent crime and homicides continue to be a problem in our city, it was Brooks who had an idea to take matters into his own hands and try a different approach. We're the ones that said that violence uh, was a public health issue. An on-call social worker, educator, a man who almost became a Kansas City mayor, Alvin Brooks is a well-known public figure. But few people know about his personal battles, his internal conflicts. So we wanted to know, how did he become this way? Why did he decide to become a cop? I'm Suzanne Hogan. This is A People's History of Kansas City. And on this episode, how Alvin Brooks became Alvin Brooks. I've talked to Elvin Brooks a few times over the years. Normally, a phone call I think is going to be quick to verify some fact that turns into a long, enjoyable history lesson with surprising twists and turns. He recently wrote a book about his life called Binding Us Together, which is a really fascinating glimpse into his personal journey and a real essential Kansas City history read. Which is why when KCUR contributor Reginald David was like, hey, can I do a People's History deep dive on Alvin Brooks? I was immediately on board. So that's the episode you're going to hear today. But what's really cool about the interview that Reggie did with Alvin is that rather than try to exhaustively recap everything he's done in his life, which is a lot, he sort of focused in on a few of those specific stories and moments that had a big impact on him. Which is a really cool way, I think, to get to know a guy. All right, here's Reggie. I will never forget the first day Alvin Brooks came into the studio for an interview. And the first thing I noticed, he was so open, real, and so sharp to be in his 90s for his age. And when he came into KCR the other day for this interview, it was the same deal. 
He was a little late, though. No big deal. But I got to point out that he was covered in gasoline. It'll go in and the, and the gas come out. Going on and on about how his friend got stuck. I'm there. We just fishing around. And then I said, well, shit. So I said, I can't stay. I said, I have AAA as long as I, but I have to be here yeah, yeah, yeah. to sign off. It it's ultimately it a whole other story. But something that became immediately obvious was that Alvin Brooks is the kind of guy you call when you're in need. <laughs> I done my part. Yeah, for my, real. <laughs> my boy Scott Merritt's today. Yeah. Okay, let's well, do this. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking some time with me today. Sure. So in this interview, we're hoping to get a sense of Kansas City through your lens. Okay. So we could just start from the top. Al, it's hard to think about what you haven't done in Kansas City, you know, from working with the police department, public education, city office, a Kansas City treasure, to say the least. I read your book. I'm surprised oh, you were you. able to. Yes, sir. I, I was surprised that you were was even able to get your life in 300 pages. Oh, God. Um, but well, really, really, it wasn't. <laughs> you had to cut some down? My, my manuscript was 890 pages. Whoa, okay. It definitely tells a story. And going back to it, Bob, you know, you've accomplished so much. And, you know, it wasn't easy at all, even from the start. Even in your adolescence, you were born in Arkansas in 1932 in Little Rock, to be exact. North Little Rock. North Little Rock. North Little Rock. And you were adopted by the Brooks at a very young age. Can you tell us what kind of people your parents were, the Brooks? The Brooks is, um, um, well, of course, they saved my life. Alvin Brooks was born in 1932 as Alvin Lee Gilder. His biological mom, Thomasine Gilder, sent him to go live with the Brooks, who later adopted him. She was only 16 at the time and wanted to finish school and knew she couldn't raise a child on her own. The Brooks took good care of Alvin and made sure he had everything he needed to have a good life. But everything changed when Alvin's father got into an altercation with the white man over moonshine. This was the days of prohibition and one of Alvin's first moments with the law when he was just a baby. They said Brooks had the best moonshine in Pulaska County. Wow. He was the only black moonshiner, but he also was close to the sheriff of Pulaska County. Sheriff provided uh, moonshine for the judge. Gotcha. So that Sunday morning, my mother said that she was just washing dishes there, and I was just there kind of holding on to her. She heard this truck came up into their property and drove right up to almost even to the, to the back of the house. And this white fella got out and began to call my dad's name and curse him and told him he's going to kill me. He had a shotgun. Hmm. So this fella walking in and, and Brooks, I'm going to kill you and call him the N-word and, and black this and all the curse words. And he was pumping this gun. So my dad said, get off my property, you're trespassing. I'm, I'm going to kill you, get off and I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to shoot you. It was a lever action, 40-44, and shot one time. And the man fell right there by the porch, and my mother was holding me in arms, and she and, the, and she heard the man, the man fell with the shotgun across his chest, and she heard him mumble, that man then shot me through and through. Wow. And, yeah, because with that, you know, your father, he did not, did not have to go to prison. Yeah. You all, in a sense, just had to leave. Yeah. But I, I'm just sort of surprised that that was the outcome because usually anyone, white or black, if you shoot, even kill somebody, it's jail time. Well, it, if it you even... kill a white man in the South. Yeah. That Monday morning, my mother went down to try to see the judge. Mm -hmm. She wasn't able to see the judge, but she just see my dad. So they took her back there to the cell. He said, uh, here's what I want you to do. He said, I need to get out of here. And she said, he said, my dad was an herb doctor also. Okay. He was an herb doctor in terms of being a moonshiner. And he said, I, I, you know what a John the Conqueror is? On the back porch are all those different roots. Do you know what the John the Conqueror is? She said, y'all know what that is? He said, I want you to go home and 
break off a piece of that. Rinse it off, put it in your mouth, and I want you to come in and, and, and get a meeting with the with the judge and get some spit on the judge. She said, you got Spit on the judge? Spit on the judge. <laughs> so uh, she waited around, and the judge was on the bench. Well, she came there quickly and stepped right, had me in her arm, stepped down in front and said, Judge, Your Honor, my name is Stel Brooks Clusters, my husband. So as she was walking down behind the judge, she put this John the Cockroach, John the Cockroach in her mouth. And she, she got close enough where he, she almost had her right knee to his left knee, she wow. said. And I'm sitting on her left. And she said, well, Your Honor, sir, go through that whole southern bit that you say to white men and white women, if you're black. And uh, he said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, he killed a prominent white man. And when a end kills a white man and down here, you know what happened to him. Mm-hmm. So I haven't decided yet. I'm decided. She acted as though she was sneezing. Mm-hmm. And saliva went all over the judge and me and her too. And she said the judge started doing his hand like trying to brush, brush mm-hmm. it all with his hand. So she said, Your Honor, I'm so sorry. Your Honor, I'm so sorry. Well, you going out of here. And he called the sheriff. He said, by the way, whose baby is that? She said, this is my baby. He said, well, ain't you white? Because my adopted mother could pass for white, easy. Mm-hmm. Hair, complexion, she could pass for white in any crowd. So anyway, my mother goes, goes back <laughs> home, walking. She said she had to pee so bad. She had to pee so bad. But the, the restroom, you couldn't use the restroom yep. there. So she walked with me back home, and, she, and we had outdoor toilets. So she sent me on the back steps and went to use the toilet outdoor. And when she came back, my dad was in the house. <laughs> She said, did you escape, man? Where did you, how did you get there? He said, that's right, start packing. Start packing. I said, what do you mean pack? She said, you, you done escaped these white folks. They're going to kill us. She said, no, I just, we had to be out here by Saturday. Wow. So whatever packed. whatever your dad told your mom to do with the- uh, That John the Conqueror. That John the Conqueror. I hope you and your listeners will look up the word John the Conqueror. Okay. Look it up. Okay. And it'll tell you what it's good for. And that crazy story is how the Brooks ended up in Kansas City. I'll be honest, I had to look up John the Cockaroo after our talk because I didn't know what that was. But here's the deal. This was a plant called John the Cockaroo that a lot of African-American hoodoo practitioners use for victory, empowerment, good luck, love, and protection from evil spirits. And in this case, Al's father used it to set himself free. But when they finally got to Kansas City, things did not get easier. Al's dad built a house that burned down, which forced them to live in a barn for a while. But eventually, they found a new home and integrated into a poor white neighborhood. Black folks used to say that to buy white folks when they were when they were poorer than they were. They said there was po. There was some po white <laughs> po po p o. <laughs> Back in those days, growing up in a Jim Crow era in Kansas City, Al couldn't eat at the same places his white friends could. Like when they would go get ice cream at Velvet Freeze, he had to wait outside, and they had to go get it for him. Alvin mostly remembers his childhood as fun fond memories of spending time with his friends but there are of course the traumatic not so great memories too mostly involving run-ins with the cops and one particular story had a life-altering effect on him when he was just around 10 years old but i should warn you there's some offensive language here basically some white kids were throwing rocks at a dog and a neighbor called the cops well they picked us up (laughs) As soon as they drove up and they had us lined up against the car, and she, she said, "No, no, that's not them. That's not them." So, so we started to walk away, going over to my house. My 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 mother fed all the kids, you know, all white kids, mm-hmm. in there. And so, and they said, "Get back in the car." I said, "Well, I live with it. Get back in the car." So they drove us around, and and drove us around, and all the time they were saying, "My white friend said," and I'm going to use the word because mm-hmm. I, I, it, 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 it doesn't have meaning unless I use the word. 
And they said, you, you white trash, but you have no business associating with a nigger. He's a nigger. And they said, no, he, he, that's Alvin. He's our friend. He can't be your friend because he's a nigger. He can't be your friend. They was just saying, and they said, well, well, no, he's our friend. You, you hear what I'm saying? And so anyway, finally, Joey, there was around five or ten minutes lecturing to them. Never said anything to me. So when we got to the bottom of the Brighton Hill, we at the old, at 32nd and Brighton, get out the car. We began to pile out the car on both sides, and we began to walk away. And he said, you, you little nigga, you come here. And he pulled out his gun, and he cocked it. He said, little nigga, if you can make it over that top of that hill, before I shoot your black ass, you're a free nigga. Run, nigga, run. Run, nigga, run. And I'm just running back and screaming, oh, please, don't shoot me. Don't shoot me. Don't shoot me. And he cocked the gun. Well, Billy, who was, who was about six or seven years old, a couple years, two or three years younger than me, he jumped up on the officer's arm, and the gun went off. And we just ran. I'm running backwards as fast as my friend was running forward. <laughs> and and then they, he jumped in the car and they drove off. Every time we did something we thought was in trouble, we'd find some glass and prick our fingers, and blood would come. We'd blood brothers, you know. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I guess all my my and white friends they don't know they got some black blood. <laughs> you know? Alvin jokes now, but these are moments that shaped his worldview and pushed him to want to fight for justice. But that was one of the most trying experiences. In my life, I knew that that man was going to shoot me. I just knew it. I, I just knew it, and I'm just begging, and I just knew it because he cocked his gun. And, and as we fast forward, you know, way ahead, you know, I'm, I'm listening to these stories, and I'm just wondering how your family took to the fact that you wanted to become a cop. I, I don't know why I decided to become a police officer. More on that after this. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, Mackenzie Martin here, senior producer for People's History of Kansas City. Just wanted to let you know that if you're enjoying this episode about Alvin Brooks, you might also like our episode about Kansas City's fight for racial equality in the 1970s and how it got tangled up with something unexpected, the rise of fast food. They are really taking a risk, but they do it because they're fully aware of just the challenges of Black business ownership during that time. Claus felt like, I'm breaking ground here. Watch me. The surprising history of how Kansas City became home to one of the first Black-owned fast food franchises in the country. Cue it up right now by searching the People's History feed for the Golden Arches in Black Kansas City. Now, back to the show. Obviously, people, myself included, if I'm honest, want to know why in the midst of so much racism and oppression against black Americans by police, a black man like Alvin will want to join the police force in that era. And not surprising, Alvin has been asked this question a lot, and he always says the same thing. He doesn't know. I really don't know, but I mentioned it to my wife. I was 21, the fall of uh, 1953. I said, you know, I think I want to join the police department. And we discussed it. But she said, well, whatever you want to do, I'll support it. She was 18. I'm 21. We got married when I was 18, and she was 15. Uh, It lasted 63 years. Beautiful. And if she had not passed away 10 years ago, the 21st of April, come the 23rd of August, it would have been 72 years of marriage. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. But 
um, she said, have you said anything to your dad about going to the police store? I said, no. She said, oh, you know, I don't know about Mr. Brooks. So I go out there, and I found him. He was sober uh, one day, and I said, Dad, I said, you know, uh, I'm 21 years old, and uh, I think I want to go to the police department. He got so angry with me. Boy, you crazy. You know how those folks treat us. Why you want to drink? You know what happened to you, sons, and this kind of, you know, how they harass us and this kind of thing. Because several things that happened to us, to me and my cousins after they moved to Canada, after this incident. This was the most egregious incident, but there were other incidents that occurred. And he said, well, boy, if you got to do that, all right. If you got to do it, I don't want you to do it. I think it's a mistake and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's, 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 that's what happened. Yeah. But he was there at my, at my graduation. And uh, and all and we wasn't happy. Yeah. I, was, I was the only black cadet mm-hmm. in the in, out of twenty nine, and that made him more angry. Mm-hmm. As I hit the streets in September fifty four, graduated in September, and, and and a couple of days later hit the streets. And he said, "You look at that class. You're the only black face in that class. Just look who your 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 colleagues are. That's who you're going to be working with." And we were only relegated to ride two districts, mm-hmm. black officers. And just a few years prior to that, if you were a black officer, you couldn't arrest a white person. Right. You had to detain them, but the white officer had to come and take them. You could appear in court and all that, kind, but you couldn't, you, you couldn't, you're right, police car yeah. with them. And, and, you know, I also want to ask, as you sort of started, you know, patrolling and everything like that, how did the black community react to, you know, you becoming a cop and seeing you, you know, patrol the neighborhood? Because I, I can even speak for myself as a black man. I do feel better if I see a black cop compared to a white cop. And I just wonder, did you get that same feedback from the black community? Oh, it, they were they were elated. They were they were gratified to see me. They, you know, we well received, well respected because the community was so small. Alvin says he and the other few black officers in the 1950s turned the black community upside down with their presence on the force. He admits they had to use some unconventional tactics when confronting large gambling operations which were run by the mob and ruled Kansas City in those days. But despite big hurdles, he says they led with respect, didn't use excessive force or beatings, and they did their best within a racist and at times corrupt system to uphold law and order while not mistreating anybody. We decided we were going to be the vanguard of the community to make some changes. It had to be tough as far as experiencing racism within your job. Tell you now that I had somebody on my side, yeah. and 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 nobody saw that 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 vision with me when I was in recruit class. Mm-hmm. Whether whether they had to this robbery, the, uh, they had this robbery at Twelfth and Main during the lunch hour. Well, I had had my experience by going to. Kresge's where the only place if you were black you could eat downtown with a Kresge, a hot dog, segregated hot dog, and segregated coat. And so I, ref- I brought my lunch every day. I never went downtown to eat because I, the only place I could eat in 1954 was at Kresge's. So this particular day I stayed in the, in the building. And Sergeant James Kennedy was head of the, the academy. And I think he felt kind of sorry for me sometimes. But this particular day, he brought his lunch also. We were sitting there with small talk and everything. And then after that, we convened the, our class. And one of the detectives, white detective, came to the door and he whispered something to the sergeant. So I came and he said, uh, Al, this is Detective So-and-so. He said, they just had a strong arm robbery at 12th and Main during the um, lunch period. And say they, they've got uh, one suspect and then they got three other uh, uh, fellows that they're gonna put in line up with you. Would you mind? If you would you mind? I said, Oh no, I do it. 
So they put me in the cage with these other. Well, I knew a couple of the fellows. Well, I wouldn't know which one of them was a suspect. Mm -hmm. And then one of them was younger than, look, it was a teenager. And I said, I wonder if he's a suspect. I'm one, they probably wonder whether I'm the yeah, suspect. Exactly but I was, I was dressed pretty clean, you know, mm -hmm. no uniform. <laughs> and they pull us out on the shore floor, and you step forward, your name, this kind of thing, and you turn to the left, turn to the right, this kind of thing. So after that, they took me out of the cage, took the other fellows on back upstairs in the jail, and the detective said, what were you doing at lunch? I said, I was upstairs with, with Sergeant Kennedy eating my lunch. He said, well, stay upstairs. He said, put me in the interrogation room, and I sat there. He came back in about 10 minutes and said, come on in here. So he came back. As soon as I walked in, this lady said, that's him. That's the Negro boy that wow. took, knocked me down and took my purse. That's him. That's the Negro boy. She's just screaming and hollering there. She's moving. Man, so she was I just going to falsely I walked, accuse you. I walked, and they said, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. So I started to walk forward to go into the room, and he put his hand across my chest and said, stand here. And he goes up to her, no, Miss So-and-so said he wasn't. This, this, uh, this uh, young man said he's a, he's a police cadet. He was upstairs eating lunch with his, with his sergeant during wow. his time, wasn't he? And she said, oh, 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 let me apologize, let me apologize. Wow. I wanted to slap the taste I, out of that I, woman's mouth. I bet. But, but, I, but bet. I, I, I wanted to Man. say something to her so bad, you know, because <laughs> you know, the devil was saying to me, get her, Yo, say something to her, yes, get back. Yes, yes. And, 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 and the angel was on the other side. I said, no, settle down. Mm -hmm. This ain't your first encounter. It won't be your last. And settle down. And so I, I didn't. So, so I went over. She wanted to apologize. I never went over to her. Yeah. I never said I accepted. And I went to the restroom. Man, I cried. I looked in the mirror. I cried. I cried. I cried. And I got to thinking, God, if I had gone downtown today for any reason, went to shop, I'd be in, in upstairs in jail with a white woman saying that a black man did that to her and she positively identified me. And so when I got ready, just about that time, my class was in, so I ended up wiping my face and everything. And, and when I walked to the sergeant, he was standing by the door. He said, Brooks, he said, Al, I'm sorry. I can understand how you feel. And I wanted to say to him, Sergeant, you don't understand how I feel. At all. But I didn't. I went on and sat down in the classroom. The sergeant told them what happened, and they began to laugh, and that pissed me off worse. Uh, my colleague, they began to laugh. Mm. And, and he said, that's not... That's not, that's not funny. That's not funny at all. Although of that generation of whiteness, uh, he was in his 60s, he still defended me. Wow. Some of them came up even that day and said, said oh, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry that happened to you. Others never said a word. Mm -hmm. I just, four or five of them, the rest of them just went on like it never happened. Mm -hmm. but, but I made them treat me with respect. In what way? What do you mean by that? Because of why, how I carried myself. Mm. They knew that I, they, I wasn't a loose cannon. I, I didn't respond. I didn't have a chip on my shoulder. I didn't use my blackness to do any, to get any preferential treatment. I, I, I competed in everything. The only thing that I could not compete with was on the firing range. I could never hit the target. <laughs> I don't know how they passed me, but I was not. I was not a good. I was that, that 357 Magnum. I could not. I, 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 Despite the fact that Al wasn't a great shooter, he spent 10 years on the force, facing all types of ups and downs while raising a family. And after so many years of, in his mind, valuable service, they still didn't advance him in the ranks to become a sergeant. So, he decided he wanted to head in a new direction, and he took a job with the Kansas City Public Schools to develop a relationship with the students and parents. And it was in this role, surprisingly, not as a cop, 
that he found himself literally at the center point of one of the most pivotal moments in Kansas City's history as it was going up in flames. Good evening, Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. I have some very sad news for all of you. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. On April 4th, 1968, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, a day that many Americans will never forget. African Americans and Dr. King supporters across the country were very angry, for good reason. The killing set off a wave of protests and riots in more than 100 cities across the country, what some call the Holy Week Uprising. Unlike most major cities, Kansas City was quiet for nearly five days until King's funeral was nationally televised from Atlanta, Georgia. By this time, Alvin Brooks had left the police department and was working for the Kansas City Public Schools. That day, the Kansas City, Kansas School District canceled classes to honor King, but in Missouri, KCPS did not. They decided to keep them open. When students heard the news, they were angry, so they decided to take things into their own hands. And on April 9, 1968, they took to the streets, and what started out as a peaceful protest eventually turned chaotic. Al was once a police officer who had a lot of love for the police department, and still does. But at this very moment, he felt like he was on the other side. Now all the schools are, are, are assembling at uh, the park at 27th and uh, Paseo, uh, Truth Lake. And I joined them, we marched, we marched. They marched and marched, and there was an intense police presence, a lot of angry people. And it was as if everyone was waiting for something to happen. And then the kids began to chant my name because I had all the black schools in the urban education, I made all those schools. I was the, the, the liaison between the parents, the teachers, and the students. Mm. And the students knew me. I was in and out yep. of those schools. They were chanting, so I spoke. People cheered. But then the mood of the crowd took a turn. There are many stories about how the riot started in Kansas City, a finger-pointing blaming game about whether it was a protester or police who threw the bottle that sparked the chaos. But this is how Al remembers it. Well, then I saw a kid uh, try to break, to, to leave. A state trooper hit him in the head with a billy club. Wow. And, and, uh, and I, I wouldn't, I'm saying there's no, this, and, and then by that time, uh, somebody threw a bottle and it hit at the foot, the feet of a police officer directing traffic to 12th and Oak. And that's when the tear gas started. And that ignited what would become Kansas City's deadliest uprising. And all hell broke loose. Lasting four days, it was one of the most violent across the country. The riot put a spotlight on Kansas City's racial tensions, leaving six black men dead, around 20 people hospitalized, hundreds arrested, and multiple blocks of the city in flames. And to Alvin, the question of accountability and the things that ignited that movement still bothers him to this day. No grand jury, nothing, nothing was ever done. Davis, who was a great mayor, he commissioned a group to look at the, what caused the riot. On August 15, 1968, came out the report. And all the things in there was talking about the police, talking about education, talking about economic development, talking about employment, talking about more black police officers, bringing the police department under city control. When I became director of human relations 27th of May, 71, I commissioned a group to review the 1968 report. And, in, and that was 1971. And the same thing that appeared in, in the uh, 68 was in, this, in the 71. Little progress in either of these eight areas. And each administration since then 
has had a copy of that report. And as you look at it, 2023, we're talking about the same thing, education, police community relations, more black police officers, you're talking about economic development, Easter truce, all those health care, all those things, and we're still at a, at a stalemate, if you will, to a great degree yeah. as to improving those. And this is 1968, let's see, 32, that was over 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, even with that, serving with the KCPS, and then you, but you didn't stop serving Kansas City. You were um, with the Department of Human Relations, then assistant city manager. Then assistant city manager. But, you know, at this point in your career, it seems as if you were sort of the bridge between the white and black community. It seemed like, you know, when the riots was going to happen, they were coming to you. Even with KCPS, you were the person in between uh, talking with the parents and helping out the black schools specifically. And, you know, would you say that is correct to say that you were the bridge? Well, I was made the bridge. (laughs) I I was made the bridge. When I became director of human relations, that was it. That, you know, the way they defined my role and everything— I did three or four speeches almost a day or an evening in white communities, white churches around. Very defensive, uh, whose fault it was of the riot. Didn't want to accept any responsibility for what occurred. But the interesting thing about that is that, (laughs) and even today, I'm surprised that if our faith, particularly the Christian faith, is supposed to be, that well, faith in general, religion in general, should be the more compass as well as conscious of righteousness what's right it ain't that it is not that sunday at our congregation in the gospel it talked about where jesus those of us who are christians are listening that jesus was storm came up and the disciples thought that when jesus was walking what he was a ghost but finally realized he wasn't and peter says i want to come join you and Peter was going towards him, but then lost his faith. And then that's when Jesus said, you, you little, little faith. But the, the real part of that is, Christians, if you keep your, your mind on Jesus, you won't see me necessarily as being a black man, a Hispanic man, a gay or trans. You'll see me as being a child of God and a brother or a sister to Jesus. And we don't do that in the Christian faith. Fueled by a deep faith and drive to make the world a better place, it seems that Alvin's work never stopped. In the 70s, when there was an uptick in kidnapping and missing people, especially black people, and more specifically, black women, Alvin and a group of concerned citizens came together in 1977 to address the unsolved murders of nine African-American women founding an organization called Ad Hoc. To this day, Ad Hoc continues to take a grassroots approach to focusing on combating crime, reducing substance abuse, and supporting families who have been traumatized by violent crime in Kansas City for decades. Today, the Ad Hoc group held a remembrance for Kansas City murder victims. About 100 families attended. In the midst of a pandemic, there is still an epidemic of violence in Kansas City. Seeing all these people whose families have lost, you know, loved ones. And so there's a common ground there now. I just hope it gets better. Hearing all of these different things that that you've done and still doing to this day, how did that sort of go with your family? It seemed like you 
your phone never stopped ringing. <laughs> no. Seemed like someone always needed oh, something yeah, or yeah, needed yeah. your help in some way. Yeah. How, how did that work? How did you balance that in with your personal life? Well, you know, my my wife was a, was a great uh, wife, a great mother, a great woman. But um, one time she said to me, she said, uh, you take care of the community, I'll take care of the family. <laughs> and she literally kind of meant that because I was on call 24-7. We closed down over 300 crack houses mm. and just a group of black men. The uh, U.S. Attorney's Office couldn't do it. We had a hotline set up where people would call in and give us, and we asked them to give us an, the address and, and if you knew who was running it. And so we, we, uh, we did our thing. We had the marches we did. We marched on crack houses on Saturdays. Police Department didn't want us to do it. We did it anyway. And uh, they gave us safe travel. We didn't want them to protect us, but just have just, just safe travel mm -hmm. right? all through the stop signs and stop lights and like that. But we we gained a a reputation internationally as well as nationally and, and certainly locally uh, of of being the vanguard for as it relates to the community and drugs and and, and drug dealers. But we got all kind of calls all day and night. I uh, very popular, and because we we are the ones that said that violence uh, was a public health issue. And homelessness and and prostitution, all those are public health issues and social issues. But uh, so, but my, my wife understood. Did she, you ever feel conflicted? You know, did you f ever feel like you were given too much time? Even though oh, obviously yeah. the city oh, yeah. needed it. But. Oh yeah, oh yeah, a lot of times. I I tried to make it up often with the kids. We we take trips together. I try to make it up. But even that, and and when they came up with the cell phone, my wife would not let me take the cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not gonna take the cell phone. And and my daughters now. I have five beautiful daughters. They own me now. Uh, and now you got to leave the telephone. You got your cell phone. You can't do this. And you can't borrow our cell phone. You can't do this. And um, my late wife uh, just uh, resigned herself to the fact that that I I ended up uh, marrying someone who was uh, pulled out by uh, by so many different forces. And when I ran for mayor in 2007 and lost by 950 votes, I never should ever get that night after the election. I had people crying, and I said, no, listen, this, this is, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And she said, how do you feel? I said, great. She said, uh, are you really great? I said, yeah. And I said, I'm glad that it's over, and I'm glad I lost. Hmm. She said, what do you mean? I said, because I just think that it was, in the, it was supposed to be that way. What do you mean by that? Well... I just felt that something was in the forces that didn't it had nothing to do with with the political politics. It did somewhat, but the greater force was that God had something in store for me that was bigger than being the mayor of Kansas City. And then, if I had won and taken office, but Three years in, both my wife and I came down with cancer. Mm. I wouldn't have been able to campaign. I would have been on one term off, uh, and not be, not because I, of my conduct, but because I had to take, I had to be, take care of myself and my wife. And that was a blessing in disguise. You wore many hats um, throughout your career, but as you looking back on everything, you know it's hard to say in a sense, what title you are, how would you describe or what word would you use to say uh, what role you had in Kansas City and what kind of mark do you felt 
you have left on the Kansas City community? That's a difficult question because it, anything you say will make you sound like you're, you're ego tripping. And, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I, um, we've all got egos. You, you will never know what it feels like to help some folks until you've done it. And over and over again. So I can't tell you what I should be called. I, I, you know, I, I, I can't tell you. But maybe if very simple terms, he's someone that never know how to say no to a request for help. Regardless of who you are, who you were, what time of day or night, what day of the week, where you were. That's my life. And I thank God for it every night. I couldn't agree with you more, Al. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, that is Mr. Alvin Brooks. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, and it's been a pleasure talking to you and just continue hoping you have a blessed day, blessed life, and many more days. Yeah, I I, I, uh, I thank you so very much, Reginald. I, I appreciate the opportunity. So now I want you all, everybody, to mark the count, May 3rd, 2032. I'll be 100 years old. So I want y'all to be there. I don't want you to come there with no, 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 uh, no, no walkers, no, no, no mobiles. I want you to be standing tall like I'll be. Thank you so very much for having me on. It's been my pleasure. Reginald David speaking to Kansas City's Alvin Brooks. None of us are perfect, but I'm going to go ahead and just say this. I think we could all take a lesson from this man, and the world would be a better place if we were all a little more like Alvin Brooks. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. It's hosted by me, Suzanne Hogan. Our senior producer is Mackenzie Martin. This episode was reported by Reginald David and produced and mixed by me with editing by Mackenzie Martin and C.J. Janovey. You heard archival audio this episode from the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, KCTV 5 News, CBS News, The History Channel, Veritone Digital, KSHB, and KMBC. Music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. And special thanks this episode to Ad Hoc Group Against Crime and Alvin Brooks. I've got my calendar marked for your birthday, May 3rd. All right, that's it. If you liked this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Write us a review, share it with a friend, or shoot us an email at peopleshistorykc at kcur.org. We also have a Facebook group you can join for more stories about the people who created Kansas City. We'll be back in your feeds in October with a spooky story for the season. Until then, I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care, and thanks for listening.